0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Okay, so first off, so after watching it more than once, um, quite often like this for some of the grosser parts, at least I know where they are now, so I'm not, you know, yeah, um how how does like your movie address the the concept of blood quantum because i know we've talked about this before that like a lot of um a lot of non-indigenous peoples don't even know what blood quantum is despite having invented it as a concept and as as something that they have imposed on on indigenous peoples but so you name it this little tongue-in-cheek but how do you think that your movie like actually addresses or draws out the concept
2: it doesn't really i mean it's kind of weird to say that it doesn't yeah. really address it it doesn't explicitly say if the parents i mean if you know native parents they're, they're gonna fall one way or the other on it
3: <laughs>
2: but in this film nobody you don't really see anybody actively sit there and say you should only date native people or you should stay with your own kind There's nothing like that, because I've never really experienced that growing up. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I've always been told, like, stay with your own kind, you know, be with Native people. And I didn't really address it in the film because I felt like the nature of digesting Native film is to look at the Native person in the film as a spokesperson for all Native people. So I didn't want to sit there and say, well, you're a coder native, so you're native and you're not going to turn into a zombie. I didn't want to get into anything like that because then, you know, you'd be kind of mired in the um, logistics of who was immune and who who isn't. I really wanted to get the audience to reflect on it themselves. I mean, why is it a concept How is it applied in our culture? And I think those are conversations that you're going to have within tribal families. I don't think it's anything that you can dictate with the film. So I I kind of steer clear of the topic, to be honest. I used it as a very facile metaphor for retroactively playing back the events of colonialism and i just thought it would be a clever idea instead of being susceptible to smallpox were immune to this particular disease and it was a comment more on that yeah and the idea that you're taking a a settler invention a a settler structure and you're weaponizing it against them i think that's another thing that was kind of going on because you never really explain why the uh why native people are immune in a film. It doesn't get addressed at all. It's just, you know, something that people just almost like race itself as an invention, as a social construct. Everybody just sees it as real, like Santa Claus or something like that. really just a it's a mutually accepted lie, a mutually agreed upon lie. So it never really gets addressed. I mean, for all we know, there's like a, a tub of uranium or something underneath the reserve that's making them all immune. I mean, it, it could be anything. I never really addressed it because I felt like it was too complicated a conversation to have on film. And I didn't really want to get bogged down in the politics too much, which is weird to say when you think about the film. but. I think the film does a good job of walking a fine line, or codifying the a lot of the politics to the point where if you didn't know about them already, then I don't think it would affect your viewing of the film.
3: Mm-hmm. You'd
2: still look at it as a zombie film. You would still look at it as you know a piece of entertainment rather than this big uh, allegory on on colonialism.
1: Well, it's the nice thing about speculative fiction, though, right? Is you don't you don't have to explain everything. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to give the X, Y, and Z of, you know, this is, this is exactly the science behind it. You can just sort of skip to the thing, you know, and in this case, you, you've you got something, potentially a virus could be something else. And it's, it's affecting one group and not another. And I, I like the fact that you can just, you do that, you don't have to spend the whole film, like trying to, trying to make up justifications for it, or, or having some scientist come in and explain it, you just do it. And then at the end, Yeah. This is where, this is where I've had a lot of discussions with people. We're like, well, you know, what is, is Charlie's baby going to be immune? What about the other baby that we saw that wasn't, you know, or, or was it, was it a zombie baby? Like, you know, and you have these questions like is, is Lysol is his whole sort of like descent, some sort of metaphor for like half breed, you know, anguish or whatever, like, (laughs) you know, you're just sitting there just going with it, thinking about trying to think it through you know, um, if this if this really happened, how how might it play out? And I think that that's interesting because then it creates this conversation with your audience that you're not even necessarily like there to witness, but it's going on around the film. Kind of becomes more than even what you've put out there necessarily. You you often talk about your, your work as coming from like a, a res-based perspective, specifically nation-specific Mi'kmaq perspective and community perspective, because there's like obviously more than one Mi'kmaq community. So how do you how do you sort of balance legibility? How do you how do you make sure that you are um sort of representing your community um, in a way that's not gonna get you beat up when you go visit and uh-huh. versus versus selling it to people who have never been to your community, maybe have never even heard of it. So, what do you, what do you, how do you do that?
2: I don't really do it consciously. I just feel like when you've lived that experience, it's not something that you need to try to recall. I think it's lived experience. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you're trained to be a fighter and you drill a certain punch a million times. And when somebody throws a punch at you, you're just going to react at some point. (laughs) So I think that's kind of what it's like. You get, you get attuned to the world and there's, there's some trauma based interaction there too, because when you exist as a native person outside of your community, you feel hyper-consciousness of it and, for me, it didn't really sink in that I lived in a city until maybe when I moved back, actually, maybe eight years ago because I didn't really consider myself an urban Indian. I didn't really fit in here. I still don't. And I kind of hate it, actually. But I always feel at home when I'm at home.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I think there's a, there's something to that too because there's seemingly two camps people that love reserves and people who do not (laughs) and I kind of fell right in the middle and I think it's that objectivity and that lived experience that you know it doesn't really need a forced application you just do it because it's already ingrained in your in your your personality Mm -hmm. so I think that just comes through in the work because you're basing these things on people you're basing these characters on people in your life and you're like oh what would this person do in a zombie apocalypse and i would be like well he'd set up a snowblower on the bridge obviously so (laughs) it's it's kind of stuff like that it wasn't something that i I consciously tried to do as a matter of fact it's almost a telltale sign when you have somebody out there talking about how much they represent their people it's usually those ones that are are kind of self-conscious about it and you know am i doing this right like can they see my clip on braids, you know, it's it's that kind of stuff. Whereas I think when you've grown up in that life, you don't really worry about whether or not you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Because there's no other way you know how to do it, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um I mean, were there things that you wanted to put into the movie uh that you felt you would not make sense to a non indigenous audience that you took out? Was there anything that that you really wanted, and then you thought about, you had a second thought about.
2: Not really. Any anything that didn't make its way from the script to the screen was usually based on budget or time, or just trying to find the uh, you know location or, or you know. There's a couple of instances where like the actors didn't want to do it, but <laughs> other than that, it was more it was more just practical stuff. Like I mm-hmm. can't think of anything. Well, if you want to count anything that, you know, white people wouldn't get, the fish coming back to life. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, you know, you're looking at that. and be like, Oh, what a cool way to start a zombie movie. Like, uh, Train to Busan had a, a deer coming back to life. But it was just a deer coming back to life. It wasn't mm-hmm. really like, oh, there was a certain deer tick in that part of Korea that kicked off some sort of zombie-like thing. And, you know... It was just deer dead on the road that came back to life. Whereas the fish in the Blood Quantum film at the beginning was more uh, allusion to what was going on there in 81, the raid, mm-hmm. kind of weaponizing the food source for Mi'kmaq people. And then you know you flash forward 40 years and the same shit still go on. So it was more about that. And I don't think non native people got that. Mm-hmm. And a few other things here and there, I think went over their heads and I think just some of the characterizations like and the other thing too, the one thing that I did deliberately do that I kind of didn't want to explain was Lysol's turning mm-hmm. bad, and it wasn't really, you know it wasn't really that I didn't want to give him a reason I just figured everybody would know what the reason was why he would be angry or why he kind of flipped out. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that needed explaining. He was like a young native man in the 80s. <laughs> what else do you need yeah.
3: to
1: of course yeah. it's great. No, I think I think that's important. But so I just want to I just want to remark on the fact like you know so I'm asking you is there anything that you um that you didn't put in the movie because you were worried about a non-Indigenous audience? You're like nah da da. That's like that's remarkable. You like that's that's a big deal. The fact that you're able to um, get the resources, I know it's not all the resources you want, but get the resources to make something like this and have the say over what goes into it to that extent where you're, where you're feeling comfortable about everything that you put in there and everything you didn't is, is something that like, I feel is, is new for indigenous peoples. Like it's something that's just happening, you know, recently. And I keep, I keep kind of coming back to that. You know, everybody, everybody always asks, You know, you're so critical about, you know, portrayals of indigeneity in in media, who does, who does a good job of it, but they're thinking, you know, like non-natives because they want to still be able to tell the stories right, and I'm like who's doing a good, a good job of it or give indigenous creators the money and and the power, and they're going to come up with the stories that are going to be the most authentic and interesting, so just the fact that you're able to do that at this point. And then, you know, into the future as well, hopefully, hopefully you've got a bunch of things lined up and money's just going to fall from the sky, but it's kind of quite, a big deal.
2: I have things planned. Not Good. quite. <laughs> not quite oh, just, right. any,
1: any philanthropists out there with billions of dollars?
2: Just, yeah. just saying. I think the reason I get away with that is I, I uh, use genres and genres have particular beats Mm -hmm. zombie genre, I didn't reinvent that wheel. You know how you kind of have to have like this white guide sometimes navigating you, navigating you through the native film, the native world? Yeah. My white guide is Western cinema, whereas there's so many familiar tropes to zombie movies or in uh, rhymes, a heist movie that you can use those beats as the 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 Western guy to native country. So whereas you're looking at a different perspective, but you're seeing it told you in a very familiar format. In this case it would be the zombie film. Mm-hmm. And we did it deliberately. Everybody was like, oh, you know, there's zombie saturation. It's because zombie movies are, are like pornography, right? I mean everybody's gonna watch a little bit of it. <laughs> everybody's seeing wine. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be that lowest common denominator there, where you're, you know, you're trying to appeal with them. You're you're trying to appeal to them because they're the mass of the population, and ultimately, what you're doing with a film is trying to get it to as many people as you can. So you're doing all this balancing between cultural representation, commercial viability, and uh, entertainment, and that's what being a zombie movie kind of afforded me was at least to a certain degree. It's going to be entertaining. So let's just start injecting some politics and, and some spirituality in here,
3: yeah.
2: and maybe nobody will notice. <laughs> and It'll still be a cool zombie movie. So that's the reason that worked, because any res person living in like, you know, in this case it was the eighties, but you know, in the time period that we grew up or were both eighties, nineties kids, I think you could take those people and put them in any fucking scenario like, if it's a alien invasion scenario, wouldn't you want to see what, like, res guys do in that? Or, you know, what a res girl would do <laughs> during a zombie apocalypse, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So that's really, that was really the philosophy. You weren't really changing the story beats. You were just putting people that you were familiar in place of the, you know, the, the, the people that you typically see in these films. And by doing that, almost through osmosis, there's some sort of, perspective shift there right it's like the difference between one flew over the cuckoo's nest the book versus one flew over the cuckoo's nest the movie is that in the book it was chief telling the story and mm-hmm. if you're going to remake make that movie why not make it from his perspective you can start doing that right you start doing that for, with, with everything do the predator from billy's perspective
1: oh Just my god the, that would be so amazing like the,
2: Native perspective films,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting though, how you're talking about because that 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 um that trope of using so, you know a white character to sort of guide you through the story is 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 really enraging, honestly, so I like the idea of genre being the thing because you know they like you said you know there's there's certain expectations, there's certain tropes for all of these genres that people know to expect, so they know where things are going, right there's always room for twists and turns. But yeah, it gives you those pockets to put in the bits that are that are very specific to where you're coming from. That sort of appeal to Mi'kmaq and non-Mi'kmaq Indigenous peoples as well, because there was so much in there that I was like, you know, it's it's not often that you get to feel like an insider um, when you're watching sort of a big film. Because one, it's it's either never filmed in a place that you've lived um, or or visited. Uh, Or or it involves people that are just so completely different from you that you're like, okay, this is it's all fantasy, including these people's weird lives, right? But this was really like the characters were familiar, the rage that Lysol had, um, how like badass Joss was, but also like so kind and everything like all of that was super familiar. And also, what I think was really interesting is how much she used the language. I mean, like, you know, it would be it'd be awesome if the whole thing was in the language, but what did you run into there? And and why did you decide to, to make sure that the language was represented?
2: Because you can put a, a cultural touchstone in the film without it seeming performative. Like, if they stopped at their tobacco ceremony in the middle of all the chaos, it would feel, you know, performative. It would feel yeah. like, all right, let's put in the Native element for all the, you know, white liberals out there. So for me... You could do that with Micmac or any native language, really. You could do it with any native language and not lose the kind of down-to-earth authenticity of the characters, which is kind of what I was going for. Mm-hmm. And it's not—it's not far-fetched either. Like that's how people would talk back then. They would switch from Micmac to English all the time, depending on who they were talking to, and would literally—if they knew there was somebody in the room that didn't speak it—if they wanted to have a conversation between just the two of them. That's what they would do. So there was mm-hmm. stuff like from all over the place in in the language. It wasn't just you know translating what they were saying. It was like how they were saying it and like certain idioms. I mean, it was it was Micmac, yeah. and it was all it was all in the name of not I don't know cheapening the culture. I guess. Mm-hmm. Because you could still, like I said, you could say anything in Mi'kmaq and it doesn't reflect on the culture per se because it's characters saying the words. Anyway, it's, 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 um, it's kind of something that I've always done in all my films. Yeah. My mom's a, a language teacher and my, my niece is a language teacher and it's, it's big in our family. So it feels like it's one of the things you're supposed to be doing as an artist, as a Native artist and that's perpetuate your culture
3: mm-hmm. but
2: I want to do it in a way that wasn't ceremonial like it wasn't sacred it was just part of everyday interaction because that's really what language should be that's what the culture should be it should be everyday interaction not you know ceremony every July for the pala mm-hmm. it yeah, should be yeah. like everyday part of your life and back in the 80s it was like people really predominantly spoke bigma you even see it in the film, Alanisa's Incident at Rest mm-hmm. where she's to just speak Mi'kmaq.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point, is making it, because that's the thing, is we, we do it to ourselves too, sometimes, language is ceremony, right? Uh, particularly people who don't have much of the language, it, it becomes ever-sacred, you know? It's like, it's like this thing that you only use, like, this, uh, we often get told, because I, te- I teach, I teach Nekiawewin and we get told sometimes, oh, there's no there's no swears in our language, like what? <laughs> there's plenty <laughs> there's plenty of things there's plenty of ways to call people ugly things in every language. There are definitely swears in our language, and 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 speaking the way that people do every day is not somehow demeaning the language or or anything. I think bringing it back to to health means using it in every way that all languages are used. It's going to be scatological sometimes. It's going to be sacred sometimes it's going to be you know boring and but if it's pervasive that's that's health right um so what do you think about uh some of the critiques that you've heard about uh the film so I'm thinking about particularly I know that there's been some folks who um are not happy with how far you went with the portrayal of some of the women for example not a big enough role or um, I don't know, I read James as non-binary, so I, I, I kind of include James in there as well. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you think that, yeah, like... Yeah, it, uh,
2: it, was, it was actually written for a guy, and I'm like, why why can't it be a girl? There's nothing here that says it can't be a girl. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I was really conscious of, there's a lot of dudes in this movie, so <laughs> maybe we should cast a, a, a girl. Yeah,
3: um,
2: But it wasn't really... For me, it wasn't like let's exclude the women. It was more like let's include men. Let's do a story about men. And I wrote it before I was dad, but I rewrote it and crystallized the story while I was having my first, uh, my first son, mm-hmm. well, my only son, my only child. And I didn't have a dad in my life, and I grew up in foster care, so I was really, really scared about it. And that's really what the film is about, it was just kind of this this phobia of mine of being a bad, that's really the, the theme of the film, mm-hmm. more so than actual zombies, or as much as colonialism, at least. It's this idea that native men have lost their way as being fathers. It's like they don't know how to do it anymore. I mean, that was kind of part of the, the exploration there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you kind of had two generations of... of Dads and one to soon be father, just trying to figure it out. And to me, the the apocalypse stuff, zombie apocalypse, was almost uh, incidental. It was just mm-hmm. like, you know, it could have been during anything, like a boil of water advisory or something. Like, right. it's the whole thing's a metaphor for the raid. So it, it, it really could take place of any siege. And it was just more about why these parents. Couldn't speak to their children, particularly men. And I just didn't have any, I don't know, I don't know how to really say it. I I just didn't have any faith in myself as a dad. So that's Mm -hmm. what was really happening there. And I wanted to tell that story. It wasn't really like I wanted to exclude anybody, it was, you know. I I had just advised for young ghouls, and it was the exact opposite. It was like I wanted to tell the story of this young girl and focus mm-hmm. specifically on her. It was kind of the same focus, but for the other end, it was like how do these young men redeem themselves after experiencing all this trauma? I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of what it was about. Right. And you know, you see, you see, it failed for Lysol. It failed for Trailer um the grandfather kind of chose not to fight anymore and it was just you know the the young man left to his own devices and
3: mm-hmm. the lessons
2: that those three failed dads left them <laughs> so i mean if there's any if there's any ambiguity at the end of the film i mean that's a part of it it's not only is like is the baby a zombie is it you know is this is kid well, capable of taking care of this yeah. kid capable capable of taking care of this child And he kind of had the impression, not really. If his mom wasn't there, (laughs) not really. You'd be a little worried about him. Mm -hmm. But seeing the mom holding the kid, you kind of have a glimmer of hope there. Because it's like, well, she made it this far. So there's got to be something about it. There's got to be something about her, her approach that that makes her a survivor. So it definitely wasn't, um, it wasn't wasn't Josh's story. It wasn't James' story. They do have stories though because we're doing um I just started doing the outline for a TV show and it's gonna be more focused on them. Yeah. Because you know, the thing about it, it was just it was just kind of like, all right, Joss and James are two prominent, most prominent women in there, two pro- most prominent native women. Yeah. And Joss in particular, you just get the impression that she's gonna be okay. Like she's uh-huh. gonna be just steady. And that that you know, you don't need with Josh because it's like she's going to be here bandaging people up at the beginning of the movie and she's going to be there at the end doing the same thing so it was just I don't think it would be remiss to say that is a great story like I yeah you asked me earlier if there's anything that I had written that I didn't get on screen that bugged me Mm
3: -hmm.
2: her escape from the uh, her escape from the the hospital Okay, like yeah. How she chopped her way out of the hospital with that fire axe. <laughs>
1: yes, that would have been so I know that was one thing. That was one thing that I really wish I could have seen. And I get, you know, you got these constraints, right? And her showing up that way, you knowing that she chopped her way out. Like that's you know, that's that's great already. But yeah, I just wanted a scene just her just like psh, slow kills. It would have been awesome. But but if you get yeah, to do this series, stuff,
2: it was kind of like it was it was it didn't make it into the film because of budgets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was you know a question of who who can you focus on and who would make a more coherent story and that's mm-hmm. it was really a story about fathers again it could have been like i said it was i just had my child so that was on my mind and was like oh my god this is obviously about fathers now <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah
2: it felt like it all gelled together and nobody really nobody really uh criticizes Native men constructively or artistically. It's just kind of like, oh, Native men are trash. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe, but there's a lot of really good justifiable reasons how we got there. It wasn't just like we woke up one day and decided to be awful. Yeah. So I to explore that a little bit and do it in a way that was, you know, a bit of a comment on masculinity in and of itself, not just fatherhood. Because every, every man in there they're such archetypes. It can almost be like, they can almost start a, a village people band. <laughs> With all their, you know, you got the biker and Lysol, you got the top, you got the construction worker. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, got yeah. the samurai sword, the warrior. I mean, it's all, There are they're all archetypical men and they're all kind of broken down to expose what makes them human.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, Basing this in 1981, like you've talked, you've talked a lot about how it's, it's, you know, it's sort of like a, an allegory for the, for the raids. Um, So why, why that though? I mean, like, do you feel, you know, because like going back in time to make, you know, a zombie film sort of uh, does does a little something with our suspension of disbelief, right? It's, it's an alternative history now. Okay. So why, why did, why did you want to make it based on that like what was what I I know it affected you personally but what did you feel this movie was going to say to to everybody else about those raids or about what's going on right now in Mi'kma'ki
2: well I think that it's cyclical or that it's never stopped Mm. the idea that you can take any story about colonial capitalism I mean to me they're the same thing at any given time and have it be so pressing i mean that's really the story there it wasn't like i predicted it it was just it predicted itself it's like the the, the earth cycle around the moon you know what i mean or vice versa it's uh, it's just something you could predict and for me it was more a comment on this happened in the 80s and then you kind of had an allusion to it happening in the 90s and then you know you Have all these other all these other conflicts that throw up blockades that typically happen over environmentalism or the use of resources on reserves. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed like a good theme. Or Mm -hmm. yeah, a a good theme. Blockades is a good theme because Mm -hmm. there's gonna be another one at some point in the near future. And it just seemed like for me that was almost a political awakening in Canada. When that happened in 81, it became a national news story and it, it set the trend for what you were going to see afterwards with mm-hmm. all these, you know, you know, uh, the Oka crisis happened and then, you know, the fishy crisis in, in, in uh, Gascovegia. I mean, it's it's it's, it's something you could count on.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: by setting it in between, sort of, it's kind of like, well, it's still happening, but it's happened all this time. And colonialism is really just capitalism, and it's really this system Mm
3: -hmm. that
2: hasn't changed. It's about mass consumerism, and it's about kind of ignoring that your resources have a finite best-before date.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the idea that exponential growth is is possible and also has to exist for capitalism to continue, right? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't add up, right?
2: Well, that's it. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, well, that's it. I mean, a zombie that doesn't stop eating. Until it's
1: yeah. 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 Um, what I, what I think is interesting about sort of, so you said it, you said it after the raids, but what a lot of people don't know is that then your community set up its own fishery, like after that, that it was sort of the catalyst for a self, a self-governing fishery. And then now we're seeing Mi'kmaq have like bought, bought like half of Clearwater. So yeah. you've got, you know, I think I think the responses to these events, the way that that in particular Mi'kmaq communities have been able to sort of like, they're like, okay, fine, you know, you want you guys want to get all violent, you want to burn stuff down, you want to protest, you want it all because we've got this tiny little sliver of it, and you guys are the ones who are like, you know, killing off everything. Fine. We'll play your game, but we're gonna do it better and we're gonna do it according to our own, our own ways of doing things, right? So I think that that, like, the fact that that Indigenous communities have been able to do that over and over again is, one, super clever. It's a subversion of of sort of the expectation that moderate livelihood or subsistence hunting where Indigenous peoples are only allowed to, like, just barely survive, you know, above starvation levels, but you're never supposed to be able to, like, get ahead, you know, because then you're not really Indigenous anymore. I I like the fact that this sort of turns it on in the head and it says, okay, well, we'll we'll play your game, but the rules are ours. So I, I I'd like to see how that could be used as like a, an extension of the film. Like you know, at the end, you're wondering what's going to happen. Well, how does the community come together after that? What is you know what because I, I believe that it can, right? They are sort of like had this huge conflict and disagreement about how to do it, but you know, in the end, what 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 would which do, you know, how would it come together? How would it repair? How would it, how would it like continue to exist? Um, obviously you don't answer that in the, in, in the film, but it's, it's an interesting thing to think about within the context of what that community has actually done in the face of like really intense colonial violence.
2: So it's. The, the film continues. I mean, it doesn't end with the, uh, well, the story continues, the film ends mm-hmm. where the baby is born, but it picks up like exactly in the same space and then I move on to another uh, tried and tested colonial <laughs> trope, and that's snatching babies from native moms. Mm. So that's what the story continues on. They, they try to take the baby to make a, a blood serum for the zombie apocalypse. Of so course. now the surviving government is snatching all the native babies to see <laughs> if they can make a blood, a blood serum. That was yeah. the, uh, the, the idea for the sequel. Which I guess might make it into the television show. Who knows? Yeah. But that was really the—that was a big story, man. It wasn't just uh, what you saw on screen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That was really probably only a little under half of what I actually wrote
3: right. for
2: that story. Everybody keeps talking about it as being uh, too short of a film, or there wasn't enough time with the characters, and you know that's why because it was meant to be a much bigger story mm-hmm. and became obvious that we weren't going to get that money it was like all right what what you kind of pick and choose what you put on screen at that point
1: yeah yeah for sure um it's probably time to ask to to answer some questions from the audience
0: thank you so much for your insightful conversation we have some great questions from the audience and if you um for those who are still here if you uh do have further questions for jeff and chelsea keep adding them to the q a and we'll we'll try and get as many through as many as we can so Um, Jennifer says amazing film I really enjoyed it which I agree with well put Jennifer I thought that the animated sequences were really cool and I plan to go back and watch them again and for those who aren't familiar with the rest of Jeff's work you also used animation and rhymes for young ghouls quite extensively Um, could you talk a little bit about these sequences why you decided to include them and how you see them illuminating the film's context and narrative Um, well they
2: don't just elevate what's being seen on screen. I think it adds a, a kind of aesthetic to it and it makes it a bit more lyrical. Like there is a, another layer there that's meant to be, you know, unpacked and interpreted. Because if you look at where they come in, one, um, their act breaks, essentially. Like you, you see one, the first one you see is right after the uh, fishing scene. And I think it was meant initially to be a, a kind of testimonial to the pollution of the earth and the pollution of, of uh, mankind because of the pollution of the earth. And there was some real specific stuff there, because if you look at it, it's actually the same mill that you see in the opening that's behind her. And there's a couple of other little details. It was meant to replace, um, something that happens that's even creepier at the beginning of the film, that I wanted it to have this overall theme of of, uh, motherhood and fatherhood and parenthood. So I I needed to recall that image of of pregnant mother again. So we just added that on there. And I think for the second one, it happens right after Weissall gets his dick bit off. And for that, we wanted to do kind of the same thing. We wanted to show an actual physical manifestation of Alan going to Lysol, so it goes from him just kind of, you know, just being bit and trying to control himself to it exploding in in pyres. And if you look at the um, the things that burn, they're actually, you know, they're funeral pyres. You can still see the limbs and stuff hanging out. It's actually a reference to a Brzezinski painting from that his work is always uh, it's kind of been holocaust although he never really comes out and says it. You see it in his work. So there was a little bit of, of that in there, too, of Lysol really doing a villain turn and adding some of the aesthetic that I wanted in the film back into the animation sequence. And the third one was just to kind of leave it ambiguous for the old man as to whether or not he lived or died. Yeah, because like, like It looks like he dies at the end, but, you know... You see him holding a head up like he did earlier in the film. And it's an allusion to a line out of uh, out of Incident and Wrestlers, where there's an old man in there that says, I, I got my axe and I made a line on the ground and I dared him to cross it. So those are really the, the three animation pieces in a nutshell.
1: Who who did those?
2: Daniel that- Geist. What's that? E. D. Films. Daniel Daniel Geis at E D films. Oh okay. Yeah, he's a genius. <laughs> he, was, he was such a pleasure to work with.
0: Was yeah, he the we... same animator who worked on Rhymes?
2: No. No. He did work on a film though. That guy did the uh he ended up redoing the Fishman science from Rhymes for Blood Quantum again because we lost it. I don't know what happened with
1: Thanks.
2: Yeah, I like um, to think
1: that the grandfather lived. That that's our that's our big one. We we loved him so much. Oh my god.
2: He did, I'll tell you right now, he did live. Yeah, he's such he a badass. But like he's uh that's that's one of the things that ends up being a continuation of the story. James, Devery's character and him survive on the reserve depending on each other. Because that's what happens when you pick up his story, you see James come and rescue him and carry him off and you know. They start surviving, avoiding the zombies, the overrun zombies. And then the, the army guys show up looking for more native babies. And then those two end up rescuing the, the great grandson, granddaughter of, of the Gisugu character. Anyway, there you go. I just pitched you the sequel.
0: <laughs> it was one of the great moments in the film when you open the barn doors in that one sort of warehouse and he's just standing there in front of a heap of of dead zeds (laughs) (laughs) um kelly asks if you can talk a little bit about your casting process maybe where you found your actors whether you'd worked with them before on other projects and maybe a little bit what it was like to work with them on a film where a good portion of them get blades put in them
2: um i cast for type which is to say i try to see as much of the actual character in the person that I'm looking at to play the role as I as I can. And that's what that's how we ended up casting Devry in rhymes. It was just looking at her. I was like, yeah, that's her. Like it doesn't really matter how she like I just prayed she could act. <laughs> and then we saw her rehearsal and her, uh, her audition, and you know, we were impressed enough to to cast her. And Gisugu, like the old man we literally pulled him out of a powwow. Like he was on the powwow circuit selling his baskets and he's like an MMA trainer on the side. So it wasn't a matter of self-confidence. It was like, you know, when you get somebody who's not experienced, the thing you worry about the most isn't like our, well, besides being comfortable on, on camera is can they handle the hours? Because It can be a lot of hours. And for an actor, a lot of those hours could just be you sitting on your ass waiting for the next, you know, shot to be set up. Then we didn't have trailers, man. (laughs) We had lawn chairs. You guys can go, you know, you can go chill out on the lawn chair. You can have, like, some tea from Kraft. (laughs) But you have no trailers here, so you're not going to be comfortable. So it was more of that. And for this particular picture, it was like you didn't have. To start off with, because there isn't a lot of actors out there that are native, and once you find them, you need to find them experienced enough to know whether or not they can carry a whole film. And that's really why we cast Michael was because I wanted somebody that was going to show up and not give me any of the days that we were going to be filming, because that's easily the biggest you know stressor, and that could suck the life out of you. And the last person we cast was actually uh, Elmaya for Joss because there was nobody there. I mean, it's like there's a ton of young actresses, young Native actresses. But when you start looking for Native elders or middle-aged Indians, those are kind of harder to come by because there's not, you know, there's not that many people that survived that long into the business. In Elmaya, we were lucky. It was more because Michael looks young enough to be her partner. And it was it was like I was a little hesitant because she's uh she is young. I think she's in her twenties, so she's she was, I didn't want to do the thing where we cast a 50-year-old dude and he's like trying to woo a 19-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do that.
3: <laughs> but um,
2: the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, that's kind of what relationships are like, so fuck it. let's just cast Elmire. But She was the best person for the job because everybody else was, you know, we read a lot of people, but she was easily the best person for the job. And that was really just that. It was just kind of you know making obvious choices <laughs> played off of you know you don't have that many choices so it's like you can you can cast this person or this person, but that's it because these are the only two people that audition because these are the only fucking forty year old main of actors up there anymore. <laughs> so a lot of it's that you're you're kind of having your your you know cast dictated to you by availability, by you know <laughs> whether or not they exist because there was no old man there was no Gisegu like the way he was written on the page he was like you would have to hatch him in a you know a back somewhere but along came Stonehorse, like literally reading on the page the same way the character does and at that point you were just praying to god that he can run run his lines be yourself run your lines and that's it we'll survive this and he surprised everybody because he didn't just do that he got into it and then he started getting into the acting and he started like Emoted by the end of it. So I get lucky a lot. And in this case, really lucky because we didn't have any audition or uh, any rehearsal time. We just kind of, like Elmaya and Michael showed up and the day after we were shooting together, it's like gonzo porn. <laughs> just, hey, you guys just meet. Let's, let's start working together. And that was it. There was no rehearsals. We did stunt rehearsals. We did fight rehearsals. I don't remember doing any acting rehearsals. Just, you know, just know your lines and
1: I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> you're you're understating it a bit because you're you're you take for um granted that you're gonna cast native actors, right? That's not an industry standard at all.
2: No, it, it is <laughs> also,
1: like the fact that you're like, okay, you know, here's here's my pool, it, again, like it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a big deal. The fact how many non-natives end up taking those roles because because there isn't the pool, right? But when you have people who are the content creators who are insisting on that, like that makes more space. It, it gives, you know, more Native people, uh, particularly youths, are going to go into acting now because they're like, well, there are there are directors out there who are going to make a point of casting us. You know, like that's that's a big deal.
2: It's The weird thing about it too is that you're always going to run into a fake Indian or somebody that you mm. cannot verify. And we did on this film too. And then it was like... Uh, the casting people are like, "Why do you have such high standards? <laughs> they are not that high bar, standards.
1: That bar standards. is on the ground. Like, that bar is yeah. on the ground. High standards? What? Like,
2: no, not you have you have high standards. The production has high standards.
1: Yeah,
2: They're high standards. They're not low or high. They're just standards. It's like if I wanted to cast a human being, I would expect that person to be a human being. I wouldn't expect you to start parading dogs in here." So it was like, I want an Indian, find me an Indian. Don't find me like a Puerto Rican or a half Mexican or like somebody who's black saying they're native. I mean, it's like, just find a native actor. They're out there.
0: Well put. <laughs> um, I, I I have a question here from Kendall Lovely um, that I actually think is might also be something that you can jump in on Chelsea, um, given your work on Métis in space. So she writes that, or they write, I'm sorry, um, sci fi channel uh, television. There's a sci fi channel television show called Z Nation that has some episodes focused on depicting native sovereign societies in a zombie apocalypse setting. And this is also a some form of this is a pretty conventional trope in a lot of sci-fi and spec-fic TV and film. Um, I was wondering if you were at all familiar with this show or any others and whether it influenced the way you approach the film or were you thinking perhaps about how to make a different version or um, approach to this kind of trope that um, as Chelsea points out in a lot of her work on Métis and space is quite common in a lot of sci-fi cinema. The
2: zombie trope?
0: Or the the trope of sort of like a sovereign native or quasi native society oh. in the midst of a kind oh, of
2: I, uh, apocalypse I didn't or think of that at all no I didn't think of that at all I mean this is again one of those things where when you grow up in the life you don't really think about it it just it's it's a part of you know what it is you're doing it's it's not uh, by design that I was thinking like, all right, we're gonna create a sovereign uh, apocalypse, post-apocalyptic society. It was just, you live within the confines, especially in the eighties, you live within the confines of the, the reserve. You don't go into town, you don't go off reserve. So when this thing happens, it's really simple to maintain those borders. Because you know exactly where they are, and you know exactly how to keep people in and out of them. So that's kind of really what I was doing. I haven't seen Z Nation, and I haven't seen the uh, when I cast Michael, I had no idea he was in The Walking Dead. <laughs> if I did, I probably there's a real good chance I would not have cast him because it was just to avoid that. I wouldn't have wanted to do like another. Oh, there's Michael Gray. He's killing zombies again. I I didn't think of like uh, any like I. Tried to watch C Nation. I don't think I got that into it. Um, so I wasn't really paying attention to what anybody was doing. When I was absorbing information for the zombie stuff, I was looking at movies more for aesthetic kills and I was looking towards books more for um, plot points or story outlines or, or beats like that. Like I find uh, zombie films to be kind of stagnant. Zombie literature is is still pretty, you know, pretty pretty amazing and inventive. And there's all kinds of things you can do or have. There's all kinds of things that have been done in, in post-apocalyptic zombie literature that's a lot more interesting than what's going on in cinemas. More because of budgets, if anything. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I was uh, coming from. I wasn't, you know. I don't that's the thing man when you're native you don't think about being native you just are and then everybody kind of points it out to you afterwards and Q&A is like this and you're like yeah I guess it is kind of native I never thought of it like that
1: <laughs> yeah I remember I remember the one episode that we did watch from uh Z Nation was we were nowhere near the Grand Canyon and the tension there was that they didn't want to let people in you know there was the tsunami there's like this there were so many zombies right they called it a like a tsunami and all these people were trapped and they wanted refuge in the native community. And there a bunch of them were like, no. But of course, somebody goes and takes them on some peyote trip because that's what we always do, right? We just don't know you from Adam, but you just come meet us and we're gonna we're gonna give you some sort of vision quest and man, yeah. So glad you didn't see it. <laughs> it was terrible. My,
2: my wife is Navajo and she's been trying to get me to do peyote for like the past six years. <laughs>
1: See, if you were a white guy, you would have done it already. You would have done it like within two seconds of meeting her. No. And then you would have been the most Indian I'm Indian like, ever. You
3: know,
2: my my mind doesn't need psychotropes. <laughs> doesn't need it, doesn't need to help, man. Like if we have Valium, like right? While you guys are doing coyote, we will probably level off together. But like I don't need
1: coyote. <laughs> oh my God. Thinking about I'm sorry, thinking about any any creativity coming out of you fueled by peyote. It's scary. <laughs> given, given your, your films already.
0: <laughs> I, I'm not opposed to seeing that film somewhere down the road, but <laughs> that's for, that's for another zoom call. Um, Just as we wrap up here, I have one final question from Robert Burroughs. Um, He asks, I know for me it was incredible to see Campbellton in the area shown um, on a feature film. I'm curious what, if any, the response from the community on either side of the bridge was to the film uh, and the production and seeing their region portrayed in a pretty special production. For instance, the aesthetic of the river is something else. I
2: think everybody was pretty happy with it. It's not like I went and (laughs) <laughs> asked anybody but i think everybody liked what they saw exactly what but you said the the area was presented well and i think the story is too ridiculous for anybody to take any personal umbrage with it although you know what man i <laughs> i say that but you you get the impression when reading some criticisms that that's exactly what happened like it was oh just another woke zombie movie or or you know just just another hate the whites movie and it's neither of those things and i think people from the region understand that because they're from the region Mm -hmm. and i think the tension that does exist there i think it's just a part of life to a certain extent and it's again one of these things when you're experiencing it it's not that prominent if that makes any sense it's it's stuff that you know it's kind of like when the micmac and the Nova Scotia Fishers became international news. It was news to everybody outside that community, but if you lived there, you knew the tension the tension existed. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that big of a deal. But all that to say, I think the the movie speaks for itself aesthetically. I think the church, the bridge, the shoreline, I think all that stuff was presented with as much love as my eye and my budget could muster. <laughs> so it wasn't like we, uh, we we set out to malign the community or anything. I mean, in terms of, of how it's, how it's uh, projected, I mean, it's like a made-up community. We went out of our way to show the names of the community as being made up. And I think it's a smart thing to do because you can appreciate film for what it is while at the same time appreciate that it's filmed in your community even though it's all made up and yeah i mean it's it's a uh, it's weird that nobody shot down there before because of the bridge and the way the sun is it actually goes down behind the bridge mm. so you can always shoot into it and it gives you these great silhouettes like that's exactly what we were doing and there's this weird effect that comes off uh, the river where in the morning you actually see it in the film again too. Everything is covered in haze and you can't really see anything. Like when you see the, the last stand and all that fog on the water, I mean, that wasn't put there in post. It was there. It looked like that that day. It looked like like a post-apocalyptic landscape. Everything was gray. I don't know why all the lights were shut off. Like we barely had to do anything to those those shots to make them look like they were in, like we could have pulled them out of uh, children of men. Mm.
0: With that again, thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Mia. And I hope everybody has a wonderful night. <laughs> Bye. Bye guys. You've been listening to a podcast by university of California television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at UCTV.tv.